0: remember our former Archbishop, uh, Robert Duncan, for a variety of reasons, some of them theological, some of them ministerial, and some of them just have to do with his eyebrows. Uh, when he visited our church, would always carry with him a crozier. It looks like a shepherd's staff. It's an Anglican symbol of a bishop's authority as chief shepherd of a diocese, and his crozier was made, I believe, in Rwanda by somebody who survived the genocide. And it was made out of a single piece of olive wood. And at the top of the crozier, you could see carved into the wood a snake that was wrapped around the crozier. And the the head of the snake was jutting out of a small cross at the tip of it. And if we didn't know this story from Numbers 21, that would seem like a very inappropriate thing. To have on a crozier the emblem of the bishop's authority—something strange, bizarre, maybe even evil—but we have this passage from Numbers 21 that gives us another way to understand this imagery. And some people, you know, they don't know why the Book of Numbers is in the Bible. I mean, there are some people. Can you imagine who think it's quite dull? No, I didn't say that. I don't. I don't think. But there are other humans who may have occasionally said something like that to you. I consider it sort of the filing cabinet of the Old Testament. There's a lot of a lot of data in there. You know, people that love librarians or libraries would, you know, find um, some of the bits to be fascinating. There's lots of figures, lots of lists. Um, but I don't think that we should uh, put the Bible down for that reason, because Judaism was a historicist religion. It really thought that records matter because it was trying to say that the faith to which we are attached has historical roots, that this isn't sort of myth based on uh, rumor, but it has substance to it. What's interesting, though, within the Book of Numbers and its collections of lists and data and numbers, you have uh, interspliced into it bits of narrative, and this is one of those bits. In Numbers 21, we have this fascinating um, interaction between Moses, the Lord, and the Israelites. And this passage involves fathomless depths. And so I can't really cover all the the meaning, but I'd like to speak about it in in terms of its three parts. I want to talk about a crisis, a consequence, and a cure. And I think that'll help us to hone in on some key things. Let's talk about the crisis, because the crisis actually has nothing to do with the snakes. Nothing to do with the snakes. It's a far worse problem than the snakes. And so let's look at the text together. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of the, of the Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against Moses and God, God God against Moses, saying, why have you brought us out of, up, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Don't you love that line? There's no food, and we hate that food. Right? Uh, what they mean is it's a barren place, and we're sick of the miraculous provision of the manna. We, we would like, eventually, some uh, lobster served up with some montorché, but it's not on the menu, right? Now. Actually, they couldn't eat lobster in a moment. I can't even say that, right? It's unclean and all that. So there it is. But Israel is in crisis. They're in crisis. And the vipers, I would say, are a consequence of that crisis. But they are not the crisis. The crisis is the grumbling has infected their ranks the grumbling the impatience the intolerance of the moment and um, people might say well what's such a big deal about griping why why are vipers unleashed because of some complaints that's what people do now if you don't like a restaurant what do you do you get on google and you give that restaurant two stars instead of five because they ran out of you know your favorite italian dressing or whatever it is or the waitress had a displeasing hairdo or whatever um but this is just something that we have grown to expect that people need to vent a little bit and what's the big deal well the context tells us why this is a big deal these are people uh, who have been the recipients of miracle after miracle these are people uh, not of a political deliverance but of a del- divine deliverance they have been uh, Uh, they have been liberated via the ministry of Moses which was inspired by God and empowered by God and now they are free free from the archetypal tyranny of Egypt and they are wandering in the wilderness but even in the wilderness God is miraculously providing them with dinner so that they never have to worry that they'll miss a meal even when there is nothing within the natural order to produce a meal and they're they're, they're living they're living because of God's uh, uh constant supernatural provision you may remember the grateful dead at least i hope you do right i need a miracle every day if, if you know it raise your hand in your heart uh, but israel uh, israel ate a miracle every day they ate miracles every day miracles from god uh, and they grew to resent the miracles not only do miracles not necessarily produce faith sometimes they produce resentment and in this case people that were the recipients of divine provision grew to detest it and out of these ungrateful hearts came ungrateful speech and they spoke against god and they spoke against moses they spoke against god who liberated them and they spoke against the human face that god had given unto these people to be the uh the sort of locus of their political and religious life and uh, and so um, they did something actually that scripture speaks against time and time again Scripture uh, has uh, uh, presented to us in both Old and New Testaments this concept that we are to respect and honor our authorities. It doesn't say their authorities will be perfect. It doesn't say that you have to bow down to those authorities when they tell you to do something that's in the will of God. There are times to speak truth to power, but generally speaking, so long as your leaders are within a particular framework, you are to respect them and their position, That's why I always loved the commandment regarding honoring one's parents. It doesn't say, honor Steve and Sarah. It's very specific. It says, honor your father and your mother. That is the position of father and mother. Whoever inhabits those positions, honor them. And that's something that's very hard for us to do in our day and age because we've grown, at least I've grown, too cynical about our leaders. And so I find that honor is not necessarily something that flows easily from me. That's something that speaks against my character, not for it. Uh, And so uh, these people have turned aside. Uh, They've turned away from respecting the chief authority and the human human face of authority in Moses. And they are grumbling. And God seems to detest grumbling in Old and New Testaments. (laughs) Uh, and, uh, you know, 2021 has been a rough year for leaders, right? 2020 uh, and 21 has been a rough year, rough year for leaders. Uh, because in truth, uh, we're sort of doing our best, but we don't exactly know if our best is the best. You know what I mean? Uh, and well, I put up something on social media the other day. Uh, I, I asked other clergy, because I'm friends with a lot of them online, I said, what's the weirdest or worst thing that somebody has said to you in the last year and a half? And uh, um, now they, they messaged me privately because they were afraid to put it, to make it public. I understood why. I, I told them, that's fine. I'll message me privately. Let me offer you. Some of what was said to these people who have lived through a pandemic in politics. No easy thing in the last year and a half. One person said, well, I asked for a given period of time parishioners to wear masks, and I was called a leftist shill and a communist spy. It uh, wasn't even by McCarthy, it's interesting. Um Somebody else said, uh, for a given period of time, uh, after the the spike of the pandemic passed, I said, now people can wear masks if they wish and unmask if they wish. And I was called a science-denying idiot who wanted grandmas and grandpas to die. Uh, During the election, one person wrote, "Uh, I had a friend in the parish on the vestry pressure me to endorse a particular candidate from the pulpit. When I said that this went against my ordained ministry, as a, as a minister of word and sacrament, he accused me of passively leading America to hell and then left the church. I have another friend who's the pastor of a non-crazy megachurch who said, this is my last year in ministry. He said, I will never minister to another person or thing ever again in my life. He said, after this year, it felt like death by a thousand paper cuts. Great thing. Now, ministers are clearly not the only people that have experienced this. Probably not the principal people that have experienced that kind of griping. But you know what I mean, and you've heard it in your own families, or you've seen it in your own departments. You've experienced it, too, to one degree or another. But I will say this, uh, that uh, griping and grumbling is very, very detrimental. It really does hurt and cost a lot, and very deflating. Uh, and there are, of course, occasions to raise concerns, but sometimes concerns can ferment into something else. Concerns can ferment into bitterness, hostility, rage, resentment, uh, the worst within us. Uh, you know, one of the difficulties that I've faced into in my own life, but I've also seen in others, is that very often grumblers almost never think they're grumbling. They think they're simply standing on principle doing the right thing, offering some concerns, simply venting, and who doesn't want to do that? Uh, But nevertheless, I think we must be careful because, again, in Old and New Testaments, God detests a grumbling and critical spirit because it is thankless and faithless. It only tears down, and it never reaches up. Uh, I think we have to be careful about this because it is a crisis. It's a crisis of the heart. It is an outward display of something internal that has gone desperately wrong. So that's something about the crisis. And the crisis leads to a consequence. And this is in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. Now, This is a particular moment in salvation history, and we have to note the moment. So Israel is living under a particular Magna Carta. They're living under the law. They're living under the law covenant, and the law covenant was a conditional covenant based on obedience or disobedience. If you were obedient, you would find immediate temporal results that would bring you great comfort and consolation in life. And if you were disobedient, if Israel were disobedient, you would get walloped, and they got walloped a lot. Because obedience, you know how everybody has a strong suit. Obedience just wasn't their strong suit, right? I know it's yours, but it wasn't theirs. Um, and, uh, and you know, they struggled, just as really, in truth, we do too. Uh, and that law covenant was given for a variety of complex reasons. But this particular time, the walloping took the form of the fiery serpents. Now, we're not sure why they're called fiery. If it had to do with their color, sort of a bronze-esque color, probably, or their effect. That is, when they bit you, it felt like fire. Nevertheless, let's just say that you're an Israelite and you know a little bit about your history and the meta narratives that have uh, created your understanding of the world. And all of a sudden, there are a bunch of snakes in your camp biting you and killing you. You may realize that snakes entering as in, as a form of judgment might have some symbolic meaning based on your own history and awareness of your own creation epic, like from Genesis three. Right? That in Genesis three, the serpent is associated with Uh, antagonism toward God with the Satan, with chaos, with unfettered anti-creation. And here we see that symbol, a multiplicity, of taking the multiplicity of forms and infecting the camp, so to speak. Uh, And what I find fascinating is that in this consequence, God is taking what is internal in these people, that is sin, and giving it an external expression that is quite similar. Like the snake within becomes the snake without. And the snake without starts attacking them. Uh, and and I, I just want to make the, the very brief point is that there are consequences for sin. I know. It's not shocking. But let's think about it just for a minute. It is quite true we are not under Sinai, which I'm very grateful for, but there are still obvious consequences for sin because creation itself is fashioned in such a way that we tend to reap what we sow. The people who didn't so much imagine up but discovered the, the notion of karma were not idiots. Like, karma is mostly true, right? That if you as a person... Act against the grain of creation again and again and again, just prepare to get walloped because God's design tends to work in a particular way. And unless grace invades that schematic, the created order just wins. Like the implicit law within creation tends to have the upper hand. And we do, in fact, quote both Old and New Testaments, read what we sow. Quite difficult. Uh, what, what I'm basically saying, and this is a very, very da- damaging word in, in, in a way, and one that I wish to avoid with every fiber of my being, is that no one gets away with anything. I mean, I wish that were not the case. And maybe you think to yourself, no, 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 you can get away with a lot of things. I know many, many people that get away with a lot of things. I don't believe it. Not for a second. I don't think anybody gets away with anything. I, I think um, God's moral order, if, if I can put it this way, is like the backdrop. It's like a screen, like a, a tight movie screen, upon which the, uh, the moral story of the universe is, uh, is cast, right? upon which the film is shown. And it's like we go up to that movie screen and take our hand and grip it, and then start to twist it according to our design. And we twist it, and it doesn't snap back right away. We're just holding it there and it seems to deform the entire screen and the entire picture, the entire movie. And there we are holding on to it and we twist and we twist more and think this is, this is going really well. Nothing's going to interrupt. But eventually what happens is that the strain becomes too hard to hold on to and you let go and everything just snaps back the way it was. Ultimately, that's how God's moral order works. It wins every time because it was ordained by someone higher than we are and that's why sin tends to find us out it always snaps back in the right place this was written about beautifully and memorably in crime and punishment a book that um uh, that many of us were supposed to read at some point, whether we did or not is another issue. But in the book, Raskolnikov is the is the protagonist, and he uh, is this sort of broke young man who's intelligent, not brilliant, intelligent, but really um, believed that if he would just kill this really terrible woman who's a pawnbroker and uh, causing pain in countless lives, sort of a mini tyrant, if he was able to off her, his life and everybody's lives around her would be better. And so he antagonizes internally about what to do with this woman. Eventually decides it's best to do her own. And he does. And he doesn't get caught. And so you would think, Scott Free. Now he's set up for the rest of his life to be a better person along with the community, to rise up and to be more generous and philanthropic now that this tyrant is gone. But what happens, what happens is you see within this man a great devolution. You see him coming apart. Yeah. He didn't get caught, and yet his soul is pierced. He's devastated, he's ambivalent, he's at war with himself. He can't find any peace, he can't find any rest. He thought he could contort God's moral world, but God's moral world always wins out. And so he's utterly defeated. At the end of the book, there's some grace for him, but it's, it's, it's a brutal story up until that point. But the murder birthed in him an unbecoming An anti-creation. In fact, this was said of him toward the end of the book. A strange thought came into Raskolnikov's head. Perhaps all his clean clothes were somehow covered with speckles of blood, even still. Maybe there were stains all over him, and he simply could not see them, but perhaps others could. His reason was failing, going to pieces, the infection spread by means of an ill heart." get it, and that's what happens. We don't get away with anything. So that's the crisis. That's the consequence. But thank God the Bible always has a cure. It never leaves you in in a stranded place. God, when he picks you up, and you feel yourself bereft of your creaturely comforts, is about to set you down in a wider place, in a resurrection place, in a place of, uh, of great quality. And that's what he does for Israel. So this is in verse 7. So Moses prayed for the people. Isn't that amazing that Moses is the Christ-like figure who loves his enemies? And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I think this is actually one of the most shocking passages in all of the Bible maybe more shocking than God asking Abraham to sacrifice his own son Isaac, because the, the, the commandments that were given to Israel, the first commandment in the 10, says that they're not supposed to make things and, and, and have them in an exalted place and bow down, right? Don't make an idol. Now people say that well, he's clearly not making an idol. That's, that's fair, he's obviously not in a technical sense. But it's very odd for the God of Israel to say, make a big statue out of very precious material, and if you look at it, you'll be all right. That's odd within Judaism. They were forbidden to make statues, except, except if they were definitively described by God. You know, Put cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, but those were cherubim, they're, you know they're scary, but they're good. Now he's saying, make a statue of something hideous. Make a statue of a snake, of a snake. Um, So make an artistic representation of everything that is wrong with the world. Make a statue of, of the serpent, that which is reminiscent of the dragon or the leviathan in the Old Testament, the oldest Old Testament image for evil and chaos within the world. Make an image of that. And if you look at that hideous thing, the thing that is killing you and your children in this moment, if you look at it, you'll be all right. You'll live a long life. That's absolutely bizarre. But if you stare at the hideous thing, if you gawk at the thing that you think means God's displeasure, it'll kill you. The venom will leave your body. Uh, and and so this is the wildness of the story. We have a crisis, a consequence, and then a very bizarre cure. Uh, and uh, you know there are lots of different ways that famous and fancy people have read this passage and have, have tried to apply it to our lives. And it's it's a hard passage to apply to your life because God has never told you to do anything like this, right? Um, but there are, um, there are sort of two different conclusions that I think I want to draw from this passage. And the first one is not nearly as important as the second, but the first one is famous. So I thought I would talk about it for a minute. The first is from Carl Jung, the psychoanalyst. And the second is from Jesus Christ, who I hear is more impressive than Carl Jung. And I believe it. Not only have I heard it, I believe it. So Carl Jung, um, read this passage and it was his favorite old Testament passage as a a psychoanalyst. And, And he said that this text is about dealing with the consequences of your core problems. He said, and he's a genius, so we should listen to him once in a while. He said that everybody has these core malignancies within themselves that call it original sin. And those things lead to particular consequences in our lives. And if we are to ever learn and grow past our malignancies... We need to stare at the consequences. We cannot hide from them, minimize them, run away from them. Instead, we have to stare at them, put them on a pole, so to speak, and look at it and own it and think, this is me. This is part of me. This is what I have done to distort the world of God, and there is something damnable about that. And I I need to come to grips with it and not run away from it and not act like it's all fine and have a bunch of like moronic friends that just nod and smile around me and affirm all my pathologies that actually tell me the truth that something is terribly and horrifically wrong. That's the only way to have a breakthrough is to stare at the thing that you most wish to avoid. The way to life is through death. Now, that's true. I think that's totally true. And here's the problem with it. It's Christless. It's true. It's just not enough. It's just more law. Just, you know, deal with your consequences. Look at the problem. That's very healthy, but it's not enough. But well, that's why we have our man. And we have our mediator. We have the person who entered in. We have Jesus. And Jesus said that, you know, the bronze serpent, it's not ultimately about Israel, and it's not ultimately about your problems. He said it's ultimately about how I'm going to help you. He said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everybody, everybody who believes in him has eternal life. It's really interesting that Jesus read this very bizarre passage in Numbers 21 and said, that's who I want to be. That's who I'm going to be. I want to be the ugly one. I want to be the one that looks wicked, that looks disgusting, that looks like the antithesis of everything God is doing in the world. I want to be that one. Um, I want to be the bearer of the consequence. Um, That's why Paul, after he thought about Jesus' life for a long time, could write these words, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You know, this is very hard to believe that God's principal activity in the world isn't glitzy and glamorous, but is gory and bloody and lonely and sad. That's hard because we typically think of, at least people with a cheery and positive view of religion tend to think that religion ought to be, well, positive. Have a positive focus and help us to positively improve our already fairly positive lives in light of positive suggestions to increase our overall feelings of positivity. Enter the bronze serpent and the battered Christ and the theology of the cross, which says the jig is up, you are caught red-handed. The cross, the cross because of its very nature, and its very nature is that we have said no to God to the point of death. The very cross says to us, you are not the hero. You didn't fight for the girl. You didn't win the war. You were the villain. You were the villain. But, the cross also says this, but even villains are loved. Even villains are forgiven. And they're all welcomed home. And it'll be all right. Because of what Christ achieved on that Roman contraption. So today's message, friends, is really about faith. Not faith in positivity. Not faith in even an abstract God concept. You know, the unmoved mover. The first principle. No. It's faith in the agonized Jesus. Faith. It's about faith in an unpretty Jesus. It's about faith in the hideous Jesus, the one whose body bears the horrid consequences of our self-obsession and sin. Isaiah, when he was looking into the future, was inspired to write these words about that beleaguered, lonely, crushed, raised high person. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And yet God has laid upon him the iniquity of of us all so when i'm asking you to believe in god i'm asking you to believe in that god the hideous beautiful god that was unveiled in the face of jesus christ gawk at him and your sins are forgiven every last one of them amen